WMQA. Hello and welcome to WMQA, the official podcast of the WMQ Comics website. I'm your host, Dan Grote. This week we're talking with Nola Fow, editor in chief for Women Write About Comics, who is stepping over to the other side of the page with their first published work in the anthology magazine Bun and Tea. Uh, we talk about that project, uh, their work at Women Write About Comics, and uh, their upcoming Excalibur recap column with friend of the show Charlie Davis at XavierFiles.com. Uh, but first, we've got another New York Comic Con mini interview, this time with Derek Charm, the artist on Unbeatable Squirrel Girl, Jughead's Time Police, and an upcoming John Constantine book for young readers with his Squirrel Girl partner, Ryan North, because John Constantine, like Wu-Tang, is for the children. Uh, meanwhile, what is going on over at WMQComics.com? Uh, I mentioned a while ago we wanted to start up a new project, uh, and if you back our Patreon over at Patreon.com slash WMQComics, we will have no choice but to get to work. So, uh, if we get to $10 a month, Matt Lazowitz will either A. Launch a second podcast dedicated to the DC Animated Features, B. Start a deep dive reread of James Robinson and Tony Harris's Starman, or C. Uh, begin reading manga in a column called Matt Reads Manga. Uh, and if you back the Patreon, uh, you get a say in which one he chooses. So please, if you think our content, the podcast, the website, the weekly Q newsletter uh, is worth your support, head over to patreon.com slash WMQComics and vote with your dollars. And as always, thank you for clicking, liking, sharing, listening, all that fun stuff. But for now, here are me and Matt and Nola after Derek. So uh, I was a big fan of your Jughead run with Ryan North, and I was happy to see you came back to do uh, Time Police with Cindy Grace. Uh, what is it about Jughead that kind of speaks to you? Um, I don't know, because I don't know that he would have been my first choice character okay. uh, All right. in the universe, but like, yeah, just like working with him for so long, he feels like the one that I understand most. And we were talking about doing another Jughead series pretty much since that last one ended, so it was just a matter of like finding is there is there another Archie character that you had considered your favorite part of this? Actually, I always joke that I like Reggie the best, but I actually like Archie. Like I think he's hilarious. Like, he's uh-huh. the funniest character. So like, I get to use him in other things, but I think he's like where I thought I would be. Awesome. Uh, you know, because you've been you're dabbling in time plays in the Archie sort of multiverse, you know, you get to draw a lot of different kinds of Jughead from like you know the classic like Dan DiCarlo style to you know uh, your own to like the Kennedy Brothers Jug Wolf. Uh, you know, do you see something like that as a challenge, kind of trying dry, drawing all those different uh, versions? No, I actually like that. Um, like, I do a lot of licensed comics. Like, I have pretty much since I started in comics. Sure. You kind of have to draw in other styles. And I just had kind of something I'm used to. It. So it was really fun to get to do and look at, like, look at other people's interpretations and try to match them as best I can. I actually enjoy that. Were you working on uh, Time Police and Squirrel Girl, like, simultaneously at any point? Uh, yeah, they both overlapped. So there was like a moment where another artist was going to replace me on Squirrel Girl. So I was like, it's Archie. I was like, now's the time to do Jughead. And they're like, okay, let's do it. And then they're like, oh, we're actually going to keep you on Squirrel Girl. I was like, all right, I can do both. Like, it's a Squirrel Girl. Like, Erica Henderson did both at the same time for me. So it's like a tradition on Squirrel Girl. How was, how was it like balancing the two? It wasn't so bad. Like, I feel like I had Squirrel Girl like pretty under control schedule wise at that point. I done like probably fifteen or so. so by the time Doug it, it was just like another like fun to make. It was fun. You're coming up on the end of Squirrel Girl uh, next month. You know, when you're working on a title like that, where the people who love it love it deeply, and you know tend to sort of evangelize for it. You know, 
do you, do you tend to feel you know when that gig ends? Do you tend to feel a little feel it a little bit more than you know your average work for hire gig? Yeah, I think so. Everyone um, who works on that book like sort of feels like a family in a weird way that other books I worked on like don't feel like. Um, and they've even said the same thing. So yeah, it, it does feel like more sad than it's ending than those other things. But, but I do think it's like a very like oh my strong body of work. I'm glad that it has like a. Uh, at the same time, so you, you know, you've got Squirrel Girl, you've got Jughead, you've also got uh, you know Star Wars Adventures. Um, you know, what do you kind of do to keep yourself from feeling like burnout? I think just having like, different things kind of keeps it from getting boring or like from growing up. It's like a Star Wars book, like just feels like a withdrawal than Squirrel Girl or Jughead or anything else. So, yeah, I think it's the variety that keeps it. Uh, New York is a busy show, obviously. You know, you're signing, you're sketching, you're doing your commissions. You know, maybe Archie's got you up in the booth doing the initial work. What is something that you're looking forward to doing here that is just for Derek? Just for me? Yeah. Uh, I do, I mean, I love like digging through like back issue bins and stuff. I kind of escaped from that a little bit earlier. So yeah, that's kind of it. I mean, there's not a lot of like celebrities I need to see or like TV shows or movies. So it's just like about comics you can't really find anywhere else. Are there any particular treasures you go uh, dollar bin surfing for? Not really. Like I like really like bad comics that were out when I was younger, and I like just saw so, like, all these weird Batman comics that no one likes. Like, so, yeah. Awesome. Uh, what are what are some of the comics that like when you first got into the medium? Like what do you remember reading? Uh, like as a kid. Yeah. Um, I really liked Superboy okay. uh, from the nineties. Yeah. Like when I was like. Dude, I'm seeing a ton of, of Cal Kent cosplay. I've seen oh, me too. at least four of those. Me too. I noticed that when I was walking around, uh, which is cool. That's awesome. Yeah, yeah, I don't know if it's like the Young Justice revival that brought him back, but... But it's like specifically that 90s one with like a lot of characters, yeah. which is cool. Yeah, it's crazy. Uh, oh yeah, because he's, he's back in that outfit, right? Yeah, yeah. 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 Uh, no, that and... So yeah, it was, it was stuff like that. Uh, I really like Steel also. It was Death of Superman as well. Yeah. Like, in my prime. <laughs> yeah, just all those like weird 90s things. Like, all, like all variations glorious of moments. the main character, you know? Yeah, yeah totally. Awesome. Um, what do you, uh, you know, what's what's in the pipeline for you next? If there's something that you can talk about. Oh, yeah, uh, well me and Ryan North are working on one of the DC Cage graphic novels uh, about John Constantine. <laughs> the ultimate kids. Yeah, era. exactly. It's really funny. Uh, I think like Brian has like a, it's a whole different sense of humor I've never really seen. It's like much darker. But it's very funny. And we're about thirty pages for that, but it's not out until twenty twenty one. So we have lots of time to work on it. Can we still look forward to the Ryan North footnotes? Um, I don't know if I can answer. Fair enough. <laughs> yeah. Fair enough. <laughs> I'm not sure how secret that is. All right. Awesome, Derek. Thanks. Of course. Yeah. W-N-Q-A. So, uh, Nola, I'll start with the uh, typical icebreaker question. Uh, what comics do you remember reading when you first got into the medium? Uh, X-Men. Uh, I, like, my first few comics were, like, some X-Men issues that I got from a, like, an antique shop or something. It was in, like, a quarter bin. I think mm. they just didn't know what to do with them. And, you know, I was, like, eight years old, and my mom bought them for me. Um and it was, you know, dead in the middle of Claremont stuff. So uh, that was my that was my start. Uh, I have an older cousin who was into comics, and he used to let me read his collection. So I was kind of hooked from there. 
That's great. Yeah, I do like I do like the antique shop as a gateway because they usually always have like that one short box in like a corner. Yep, and they never know what to do with it. So so everything is priced to go. Yeah. Yeah. I was in an antique shop over the weekend with said box. A lot of Valiant, a lot of weird Valiant, and some Vertigo, which was especially strange. Hey, if you, if you can get that Valiant stuff, get it. It's great stuff. Oh, oh that, it was all... it, absolutely. And I, I had all the Valiant or I would have picked it up. <laughs> Actually, they, yeah, I saw an antique shop by me that had that short box, and it, it was chock-a-block with... I think it was yeah. I'm pretty sure it was the it was the '90s Valiant, like the classic stuff. Amazing. Yeah, that stuff is. I mean, it's it's great because it's it's inexpensive to get hold of, and it's it's really solid storytelling. Absolutely. Um, but uh, you're here uh, because you have a uh, story in the upcoming uh, Bun and Tea anthology that was just backed on uh, Kickstarter that Claire Napier uh, has put together, um, and not only that, but it's your first published uh, comics work, correct? That's correct. Yeah. So, uh, yeah, what can you tell us about uh, your particular story in it? Uh, so um, I wanted to do a story that was about being trans without the baggage that comes with it. Because uh, a lot of, a lot of, like, first of all, the, there's, there's not a lot of uh, trans-focused storytelling in comics to begin with. Mm-hmm. Um, we tend to exist on the margins uh, there's, you know, there's like one prominent trans writer in comics, mm-hmm. uh, and when stories are told about us, or when stories are told that use elements that involve us, um, it tends to focus on the trauma, and it tends to focus on the things that we have to overcome, and you know, it's it's that it's that what do they call it? Inspiration born. Sure. Mm-hmm. Uh, the the oh, you're so brave, and oh, you're, you know, you've, you've overcome so much. And I, and I get why that happens, but also uh, when I say that I want to read trans rap in comics, that isn't what I mean. And so it's really a case of, you know, if you don't see the thing you want being made, then go out and make it. Mm-hmm. Um, and so the story itself is about a, a young trans girl who um, kind of encounters some some resistance in the form of some school bullies and things like that, and it's it's about overcoming that, but it's about overcoming that both in a way that isn't so damaging and so difficult. Um, how does you know how does it feel kind of you know putting putting your stuff out there for the first time, kind of seeing your first? I mean, obviously you've been writing about comics for quite some time but you know actually being on the other side of the process um it makes me a little nervous um it especially makes me nervous because uh it is a shorter comic than a lot of the ones that are appearing in bun and tea mm-hmm. um like like bun and tea's totals is uh, like a planned six issues and my comic itself or my comic with willow is is six pages total mm-hmm. so it's just one page an issue so it's it's very much a minimum of storytelling and honestly, like my biggest insecurity is that people are going to see that one page in, in the first issue and just think, well, what is this? This is, you know, this is much. Um, and and some people worry about their work being received poorly. I think probably the thing I'm worried about most is people looking at my work and just shrugging, you know? 
I want uh, people did, to care, even so, if they don't like it. <laughs> um, how did how did you and and um, I'm sorry, what was the name of your artist again? Uh, Willow Willow Tomeo. Okay, uh, how did you and Willow uh, Willow go about deciding the um, you know the format uh, for this for this story? Uh, so Claire gave me a page count um, when I when I sent her my pitch, um, and from that page count. Uh, uh, it was actually Claire who hooked me up with uh, Willow too, and then when we started talking, uh, there are a couple of things that Willow's really good at. One is um, facial expressions. Um, she has this uh, pretty unique kind of cartoony style, but uh, she's very good at uh, subtlety and nuance and expressions. Um, and so I wanted to let her have a little reign with that uh, because she should be able to do what she's good at mm -hmm. um and and then when it came to layout uh i mean really it's just a case of yeah those six pages and and working within those constraints mm -hmm. um and my 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 script was pretty light on the actual like panel layout and things like that uh you know i i, I was i did a lot of describing the scene and and what was happening um and I gave a panel count, but I, I let Willow decide the layout. I let, like, I let her decide how she wanted to arrange those because, uh, I, you know, I don't want to be a tyrant in, in the comics making process. Sure. So something akin to the old classic quote unquote Marvel style. Akin to that, maybe, maybe a little bit more involved in that, uh, in that, you know, I wasn't, it was the dialogue and everything was, was there ahead of time. It was just the panel arrangement that I was leaving up to her. Um, you know, we're working with with Claire. You know, obviously, you know, you've got you're in this process now. You've got an editor. You're getting notes. You know, uh, how did that how did that process go? Uh, pretty smoothly. Um, I've worked with Claire uh, for a long time. Claire was actually one, uh, the first person who tapped me to, to start writing for WAC back when she was editor in chief. Um, so Claire and I have a really strong working history, um, and like I've edited her work and she's edited mine, and we're both very good about, you know, uh, when we give our work to each other, we just say, you know, don't be afraid to go hard, don't be afraid to to give me your worst critiques because we trust each other, and we know that uh, even if we were to say something that was that that the other might. Inst instinctively received poorly it's coming from a good place it's coming from a constructive place um and so that part of the process was really easily it was really easy um i don't have any concerns or anything like that about giving my work to claire because she's such a strong editor she's so good at what she does that's great that's that's great that you have that working relationship um, yeah now uh Bunny T, the Kickstarter ended, I believe, yeah, just just a, a month or so ago. Um, mm -hmm. You know, is there already kind of talk of putting together the uh, the second issue? So I don't know what the plan is for that. Um, mm -hmm. I know that it's down the pipe, but I believe Claire is still finalizing the first issue, uh, okay. so she's yeah. not quite ready for the second issue yet. Sure. <laughs> um, have you gotten a look at some of the other uh, pieces that are in it in the magazine? Uh, yeah, I have, um, and I'm pretty excited about it. 
I got to see the uh, I think the same thing that that she sent you. Okay. Yeah. Um, and then there's the uh, there was the preview thing that came out a little while ago, um, which was I think right before the Kickstarter. I'm running off of memory here, and my memory's not always the greatest. Uh, but it was like a physical copy, and it was at uh, I think a con, a con in Toronto, because that's where our publishers are. And so, like, there was there's some some other physical stuff that's been out there, and it's it's been really cool to see a lot of the other work. Um, I'm pretty excited about the whole project. Uh, what it, what is it about the project in, in in general, the magazine as a whole, that kind of uh, you know? speaks to you and, 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 you know, made you want to get involved? Uh, so Claire's vision for the project was uh, kind of based on some old British magazines uh, where they would do comics and articles. Um, so it's not really an anthology in the way that, that you see a lot of on Kickstarter these days. It's meant to be a magazine. Um, so I like the idea of, of doing that, of branching into a style of comics that maybe isn't as common anymore. Mm-hmm. Um, and I also like uh, I like the tone um, of what's presented. Uh, I like the fact that it's not one specific type of comic confined to a theme. Mm-hmm. I like there are multiple ones with multiple art styles. Everybody's here to tell their own story, to, to tell something that means something personally to them. Um, and I like that we can get that all in one spot. I like that we can pick that up in an issue. Uh, read through that, read through interviews, read through essays. It's just, it's it's something that we haven't seen in comics in a while, and I, it's something that I think really represents kind of what comics can be. Yeah, no, I, I, I definitely agree. You know, I really just kind of, looking through the PDF, I really enjoyed the, the, the mix of stories, but also the other, you know, the magazine-style content that was uh, interspersed, you know, kind of the, mm-hmm. the, the reading lesson on, on photo comics and, uh, you know, uh, Steve Morris is a friend of the show. So I, I very much enjoyed his, uh, his Q and a, uh, and Steve, like yes, Steve is also a friend of mine. He's great. Uh, definitely. Um, is there, is there a, you know, a piece that, that wasn't yours in, in the magazine that, uh, you know, you can kind of, just to, to give the readers a, a tease of something else that you know they should be excited about with uh, with Bun and T. Uh, I really liked uh, Nick Marino's piece. Mm-hmm. I mean, it's weird black and white, high concept sci-fi, and, and I do not use weird in any pejorative sense. As I love me weird. <laughs> yeah, it's it's. It's yeah, high concept sci-fi is a good way to put it. It's uh, it plays a little bit with uh, kind of some some absurdist con- concepts, and I like that. I like that. Um, I like that it's something that just is what it is. You know, it mm-hmm. it doesn't spend a lot of time trying to explain itself to you. It's you know, hey, this is Laserbird. Uh, <laughs> You're here for the adventure now. Enjoy. Alien demons go nuts. I mean, the name yeah, of exactly. Laser Bird uh, is... <laughs> exactly. Yeah, like it's just it's such a thing that it's like, um, it's unapologetic about what it wants to do, 
and it's unapologetic about the level of energy that it has. And I just, I really appreciate that. I also liked uh, uh, the tide. Mm. I, I, the art style is really great here, um, and you know I'm a sucker for for the type of sci-fi that is very small and very contained. Uh, and so this just you know this is dialogue in a ship, mm-hmm. uh, which is the kind of thing that maybe a lot of readers don't think about when they think about sci-fi, but. Uh, for somebody like me, like I grew up, uh, when I was in high school, there was like a, a specialized English classes. And so one of the ones that I took when I was in high school was sci-fi. So I just spent an entire term, an entire school year, studying nothing but science fiction. Um, and so there's a, a history to it there that predates like the space opera stuff, where it's very contemplative, it's very quiet, it's very introspective. Um, and that's the kind of thing that I want to see in sci-fi. That's the kind of thing that like, it, it makes me stop and take notice. Are we talking Asimov and Heinlein, or are we going even further back than that kind of uh, stuff? Yeah, stuff like that. Uh, stuff like Silent Running, uh, the movie, uh, right. which is, you know, uh, well before lasers and exciting space battles. It was, you know, a guy with a biodome on a ship trying to keep Earth's plants alive. Uh, you know, just a, stuff like that's just really interesting. Uh, a canticle for Leibowitz. Yeah. Yeah. It is fascinating and deeply contemplative and like nothing else you get, very little else you get in science fiction with its mix of post-apocalypse religion and sci-fi. Right. So I, I, I really enjoy things like that uh, where because uh, Personally, I think that, that when you're dealing with sci-fi, uh, sci-fi isn't really about uh, future tech and things like that. I mean, that stuff is is there, but it's window dressing. You know, sci-fi is about the human condition. It's about what humanity's you know struggle for progress, what what humanity's venture like journey through time and space and all of that, what it means for us. Um, so you can do fun space opera stuff, but there's got to be a human component. There's got to be something that that speaks to the human condition, and I I, I see that when I run when I'm looking at the tide. So that's what I liked about it. You know, I I I feel like I'm I'm just gonna hazard a guess here. Uh, Star Trek fan? <laughs> uh, yeah, a little bit, a little bit. I, you know, maybe I spent most of the day playing Star Trek Online before I, before I took this call, so. Maybe. Maybe. <laughs> maybe. I, I refuse to be, you know, pinned down. Fair Absolutely. enough. <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> if you were the type of person to be pinned down, um, what would your favorite Trek be? Uh, I think, uh, like, my favorite... My favorite era is firmly in like the next generation Voyager, Deep Space Nine stuff. Um, of those, I think Deep Space Nine is probably my favorite. Uh, I I really enjoyed Next Generation, and that's the stuff that I grew up on. And I, I I find that I'm enjoying Voyager more as I go back to it as an adult now than I did when I when it was on the air. Hmm. Um, 
but there are, there are elements to Voyager that I really, really appreciate, which is the things like um, when they first get stranded in the Delta Quadrant, they've got to like uh, figure out food, you know, because the replicators aren't prepared for this kind of journey. Um, and so they have to make these modifications. And I, I, I really like that, that it took time to address that stuff because a lot of shows wouldn't have, you know, a lot of, a lot of sci-fi shows, um, would, they just tend to gloss over things like that. Um, and for all that Voyager is an offbeat weird show, it, 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 it questions things like that. It questions, uh, it challenges the very nature of, uh, Star Trek's whole thesis. Like the whole thing is that it's a post-war society. It's post-scarcity. You know, they have access to everything that they need. And Voyager is itself a challenge to that. It's saying, well, okay, well, what happens if you start taking some of those elements away? What happens if they're, if these these crew members are once again isolated? Um, and I'm, I'm very fascinated by that. I'm very interested in that. So, that I mean, that's that's been my current thing is I've been re-watching Voyager. Hmm. Makes me want to go back and watch it again in a more beginning to end manner as I will watch an episode here, an episode there, but I haven't done a hardcore rewatch of Voyager. I want to start at deep space nine rewatch, but I will spare Dan more deep space nine talk as uh, (laughs) my, uh, me and our buddy Rob, when we get together invariably wind up talking about deep space nine for a little too long. And I always feel kind of bad about that. No, I mean, no, I it... sit there and smile politely the entire time. <laughs> yes, you do. Is it too long, or is it just the right amount of time? It's just the right amount of time for me and Rob, that's for sure. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Uh, I have to admit, one of the things in the magazine that jumped out at me was that the magazine has a mascot slash host that is sort of the anti-crypt keeper, an adorable rabbit with his or her tongue sticking out named Bunton Cuppersham, which makes me very, very happy because... Bunton Bunton is extremely adorable and I love him. (laughs) Yes, Uh, it it does make me want to ask, and I probably will ask this of anyone who is involved in this anthology who comes on the show, um, as... Dan and I, we, we like to ask our guests about their pets uh, because Dan is a dog person and I'm a cat person and we are the example of how people of different pet inclinations can still be very good friends. Um, <laughs> and uh, have you ever had a pet bunny? Uh, I've never had a pet bunny. Um, I have uh, I have two dogs currently and I have a pet snake. Ooh, a snake. I don't think we've had a snake yet. I think that is our first snake. <laughs> Uh, yeah, we have a we have a ball python. Her name is Terry. Uh, she is named that after the wife of Steve Irwin. Oh wow! My wife and I are hoping to get a new bunny come this spring when we can finally clear out the sun porch where our old bunny used to live that is currently filled with all the stuff that was mine from my parents' house when they sold their house. Uh, but we, we, we had a bunny, and the bunny passed, and we now need to get a new bunny to give our cat a friend that she can look at through the glass and not actually interact <laughs> with. 
<laughs> because she does not like to have directly interact with other animals, but does enjoy staring at them through windows or sun porch doors. Okay, so she enjoys a nice zoo. Yes, yes. <laughs> she, she she likes to be queen of the castle. That's kind of okay. what it boils down to, as she is Which... currently curled up on my uh, mic cable. Isn't that right, Beth? Yeah. <laughs> that tracks with most cats I've met. Very much so. <laughs> yeah, unfortunately, I see. I love both dogs and cats. I can't have cats because my my husband is allergic to them. Uh, so I just I I just go visit my friends who have cats and then you know spend time with their cats as often as I can. <laughs> a, 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 a a noble sacrifice you are making. <laughs> So, uh, moving, moving on, uh, so you are one half of the teams who will be uh, writing the, uh, uh, you know, the Docs Talks uh, conversational recap reviews over at uh, Xavier Files, um, doing Excalibur or Excalibur Buddies with one of our favorite people on the internet, Charlie Davis. Um, yes. We have already established your, your, your X-Men fandom. Uh, what, what makes Excalibur, uh, this iteration of Excalibur, your book? Uh, so I am, uh, I'm kind of a sucker for Excalibur as it is. Um, uh, I mentioned earlier that I had a cousin who had comics. Uh, he had a, a very solid run of, of early Excalibur, like the, the Claremont and Davis stuff. Mm -hmm. Uh, so it was just, it was just, a, a happenstance that I happened to have a really good chunk of that right when I was getting into comics. So I imprinted really heavily on it. Um, and so just the concept uh, of the team has always interested me. Mm -hmm. um, and from there, you know, like I, because I'm, I'm the kind of person who just uh, researches things and gets deeper and deeper and deeper. Um, when I did my Excalibur reading and when I, when I learned everything that I could from those books themselves, I started branching into what the characters were doing uh, before that. Um, and, you know, Kurt and Kitty are in X-Men, but, uh, Brian uh, has his whole whole other thing with his solo titles um, in Marvel UK and things like that. So there's the Captain Britain comics, uh, which, by the way, Claire has written some great reading diaries of for WAC. Uh, so Captain Britain reading diary. If you Google it, you'll find them. Yeah. Um, and so I'm very interested in very interested in the concept of Captain Britain, the Captain Britain Corps the way the powers work. Uh, and so seeing Betsy, uh, first off back in her original body, finally, uh, and second off taking the mantle of captain Britain is something I'm really intrigued by. That's, uh, I want to see what they do with that because, uh, there was a lot of thematic stuff in the original Excalibur that I don't see here. And there's a very different team lineup that I, the, from from what my understanding of Excalibur is, mm -hmm, uh, and so rather than be the kind of person who looks at that and goes, "Ew, that's not my Excalibur," I'm the kind of person who looks at that and goes, "This is interesting. What are they going to do with this? I can't wait." Uh, and so I'm really excited about that. Um, it's also interesting to me because Excalibur or Captain Britain, especially, is this, uh, like. Brian's whole genesis as a hero is the rejection of the sword. He's given mm -hmm. he's given the choice between the sword uh, and I think the scepter. 
uh, and he chooses the scepter, and that's why he becomes Captain Britain. Uh, because he doesn't choose the weapon, he chooses the other uh, the other option. Mm-hmm. And so, to see a Captain Britain who is explicitly wielding a sword on the cover of Excalibur is the kind of thing that it's just wrong enough that I really want to know where it's going. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. No. Yeah. Definitely. Uh, you know. I mean. Kind of going along that same theme, I'm I'm fascinated by Apocalypse being on the team. You know, just yes. this whole evolution this past year from from Age of X Men and and you know endless jokes about the raw power of eroticism to <laughs> you know him in in Hawk, uh, House of X Six when the whole you know big party slash implied orgy is going on and he's just kind of sitting off in the corner like sad like I, I you yes. know like the, the whole I guess I've gotten what I wanted and now I don't feel satisfied, you know, look at his face. And, you know, in the meantime, I know he's been like Hickman wrote that thing in Marvel 1000 where he's like pining for his original horseman and stuff like that. So, right. Right. Yeah. No, I'm, I'm, I'm real excited about apocalypse, uh, being on that team. Uh, I like apocalypse in general. Um, I'm a big fan of, of stuff that he's appeared in. Uh, don't tell Claire, but I actually really love Age of Apocalypse. Uh, she does not. Okay. Um, <laughs> um, so I. We'll just keep that between you, me, Dan, and everyone who listens to our podcast. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Claire, don't listen to this part. <laughs> so, um, which is you know really really helpful to to hear that advice after I've already said it, but you know. <laughs> Uh, so I'm, I'm excited to see what they're going to do with him because Apocalypse very much strikes me as the kind of character who has never existed apart from his crusade. Mm-hmm. Uh, and so, like you said, you know, he's got what he's wanted. So now what, what does he do? Because he's defined his entire life by that. And so now he, we actually have to figure out who Apocalypse is as a person, not just as a mutant supervillain. Mm-hmm. You know, and, love- and how does it change how you read the character? You know what I mean? Like yes. every time you see Apocalypse, like I only picture that booming voice from the '90s cartoon. Now, part of that is just the fact that you know that's that's my you know age cohort. But you know, I don't, I can't picture continuing to read him in the same voice doing you know parliamentary politics. <laughs> oh, and see, I the difference is, is I absolutely can picture that. I absolutely can read it that way because uh, mostly because of Jay and Miles. Fair uh, enough. Yes, absolutely. I listen, yeah. I listen to a lot of Explain the X Men, and and so Miles always does those great apocalypse tangents. Uh, <laughs> and so while I might not have been able to picture it before, now it's very easy for me to do that. <laughs> I it would be interesting to see an apocalypse who's now at ends uh, interacting with Evan because yes. it, it was interesting in that one arc of Dennis Hopeless's all new X Men where they went where uh, Evan and Beast went back in time and uh, Evan interacted with Young not yet quote-unquote evil apocalypse and now apocalypse having to not be again 
you know, as he is beyond good and evil, as the television show reminds us, um, but interact with, you know, golly shucks, G Evan in this world. Yes. Yeah. So, uh, it's, it's a fun thing. Uh, one of the things that I really enjoy in comics is when characters are forced to either a confront themselves as younger people or b confront, uh, children of a sort and like apoc like evan isn't isn't like apocalypse's son but in but in a way that's kind of the dynamic that they have because he is like the next iteration mm-hmm. and so even though apocalypse isn't like a parental figure to evan he has to look at evan as that as that uh through that window of well if i'm all about survival of the fittest if i'm all about uh, this mutant supremacy concept and Evan is himself the next version of me does that make me obsolete does that make me inferior to him uh, that's a I don't know if the comics are actually going to explore that but it's something that I would really like to see mm-hmm. um, but I love that kind of thematic thing you get it with um, Iron Lad and Kang you get it I mean you even get it with Damien and, and Batman Uh it's it's a great concept because it's it's eminently relatable at all times to all people uh, because there's always a younger generation in the world mm-hmm. that is calling into question the practices of, of their elders. Uh, and anytime art intersects with that, you get really fun stories. Definitely. Um, not, not to go through the book's entire roster, uh, but uh, you know, I think one more one more person we need to point out, just because you know you are working with uh, comics number one Richter fan. Oh yeah, yeah, uh, Richter. Um, yeah. So yeah. I'm leaving Richter for Charlie because <laughs> that's fair. <laughs> that's I mean that's that's Charlie's bread and butter. Uh, I'm very excited that we get the book that Richter is in uh, because I'm very excited to be a part of Charlie's excitement. Mm-hmm. Uh, I don't really have a personal connection to, to Victor uh, or to Victor, excuse me. Uh, he comes from an era of X-Force that I didn't really read much of. Um, I'm, I'm kind of in the process of getting through it now. Uh, but I am excited to, to learn that stuff, to, to experience that. And, you know, like, uh, Charlie can yell about Richter the way that I can yell about Claremont X Men. Like it's sure. it's gratifying to me to see somebody who has the kind of excitement level that I can have, but who has it about something that I'm not as familiar with because I feel like I can learn a lot from that. That's great. Uh, yeah, I'm I'm definitely looking forward to uh, you know this column. One of the one thing that I love about this current era of X Men in general is how much it has spawned this cottage industry of conversation online about the books. You know, in a way that I think is more thoughtful and more civil than, you know, most of the discourse that you see around comics. Uh, you know, just in a given week, I can read. Uh, you know, I read uh, Kaylee Hearn's review of, of House of X Six on Women Write About Comics. Uh, mm-hmm. You know, there's there's Chris Edelman and Robert Secundus's Hoxpox talks that's been going on over at Polygon. Uh, yep. that has spawned this larger Docs Talks uh, project that's about to launch uh, this coming week. Um, you know, I, at WMQ, we do a column called X-Man of the Week, uh, which always winds up being like multiple people. 
uh, and not just one X-Man, uh, <laughs> you know, and then there's like the entire, the whole X-Spoilers hashtag that's developed sort of organically to keep people engaged without ruining things for, for, you know, those who haven't had a chance to read the book yet. You know, do you mm-hmm. feel like it's, it's this vicious cycle where the quality of the book raises the quality of the discourse? Uh, I don't necessarily think that that's that it's quite that. I think like it's not a, a, a correlation isn't causation, you know. Okay, yeah, um, no, sure. I I think that uh, I do think that the book's quality helps that discourse mm-hmm. um, because you get a lot more people that are excited about it, uh, and so rather than fighting back and forth we all just want to share our excitement we all just want to talk about it um and i think it's also because it's hickman because it's hickman coming in with the reputation of being hickman uh everybody is withholding judgment in a way that they might not have otherwise Mm -hmm. um because the whole thing with hickman is that he lays everything out and he's so meticulous and we know you know we know all about his timelines that he's got up on walls and things like that (laughs) um and so we end up as a function of that looking through it with a fine-tooth comb uh so we're we're debating this and we're discussing this in a way that that is different from how we might normally interact with, with the comics because we're all still in the process of trying to figure it out. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, I think that when we come to comics discourse from a place of wanting to learn and wanting to figure out more, it changes the way that we talk about them. It changes the way that we, uh, the way that we, think about them uh, because instead of like I said just jumping to that place where well you know this is terrible or this is great mm-hmm. we're going what is this uh, we're being challenged as readers by X-Men for the first time in a long time mm-hmm. uh, and so rather than jumping straight to that judgment we're figuring out what the challenge is I think that, yeah, ab- yeah absolutely Although, just kind of thinking about it, there was that one review that came out over the weekend that compared the X-Men to White Nationalists, which just... Uh, no. Just just no. <laughs> yeah, that's that's bait. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's bait. Uh, I, I will... Like, the only thing that I'm going to say on that is that uh, a marginalized community acting in self-defense by, by, by choosing to separate themselves from their attackers is not the same thing. Right. Yes. That's all. 100%. Moving past that. Um, you know, X-Men fans in general have always had that one obscure favorite or Cyclops. Um, or both. Or both. Absolutely. <laughs> yeah. uh, you know, who is who is your ride or die mutant? Uh, so I'm a Cyclops lover. Um, I've, I've done like full on articles and, and interviews about Cyclops. Um, yeah. <laughs> You're in the right place, my friend. <laughs> yeah, uh, it's, it's he's he's one of my absolute favorites. Uh, I just 
I love the concept of a guy who has given himself over to the mission so wholly that he doesn't know how to function as a person. Uh, it's great. Um, that said, like I have, I have so like, it's it's hard to really pick a favorite because I have such a strong connection with all of them. Mm-hmm. Um, like I loved Colossus growing up. Um, I loved the concept of you know the big strong bruiser type who was actually quote unquote this sensitive soul who you know is an artist in his free time. Um, and I say quote unquote because. Uh, when you actually go back and look at Colossus's history, when you actually look at his behavior uh, and the choices he makes and the way that he reacts to things, he's not actually that pacifist. He's not actually that nice even. Um, He's kind of a jerk a lot of the time. He does Uh, at least two murders, uh, high-profile murders in the Claremont run and, you know, cheated on Kitty. Yeah, well... well, He's Kitty with Pete Wisdom in that issue of Excalibur and then beats Pete Wisdom three quarters of the way to death. Right. So, without so saying that. anything. So there's all of that. And then there's the fact that like he was grooming Kitty to begin with, because she was way too young for him. And for all that he said no we sh- no we shouldn't be doing this, he was still doing it. Mm-hmm. Um so, you know, there's all of that to contend with. Um I feel like Colossus wants to be a good guy, but has some very unfortunate gender politics going on with him. I, I find there's the line from, oh, it's an episode of Doctor Who. I'm uh, a good man goes to war. Um, good men don't need rules. Today is not the day to find out why I have so many. And I think Peter builds tries to build that structure around himself to avoid the fact that he has an an internal inclination to not be quite as good as he wants to be yes uh and and you know it's it's notable that that peter is a character who is always in search of a leader he's absolutely not one himself uh he Mm -hmm. goes from working on the farm uh, for, you know, with for, for all that it's a 70s understanding of a communist state, like he goes from that, from putting his faith in his country and and the belief system that that guides that country, uh, to following Xavier and making you know, uh, putting his faith in Xavier, to following Magneto and putting his faith in Magneto, and and it reads very much as a fear of taking responsibility for himself when you look at it as a whole. Mm-hmm. Colossus wants the things that he wants, and he absolutely does not want to be held accountable for the choices that he makes. Yes, mm. absolutely. Um, kind of, uh, yeah, moving on again uh, from X-Men, I uh, want to talk a little bit about uh, your role as, as editor-in-chief over at Women Write About Comics, which, uh, you know, it's one of those sites that comes up and gets tagged when I see people ask online, hey, what comics journalism should I, should I be following? You know, which is something you don't see with, you know, your CBRs, your newsaromas, etc. You know, and I, 
I see lately, you know, I've seen a lot of conversations online where people are kind of using a lot about what comics journalism is, you know, and I'm going to use the scare quotes here, supposed to be. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. never, never minding that, though, ultimately, you know, what are, what are you looking to accomplish through, through your site? Uh, so, WAC was founded uh, in response to someone in the comics journalism community asking where all the women writing about comics were. Uh, and so, uh, you know, back when it was founded, Megan pulled several people together and was like, well, we're right here. You're just not listening to us. Uh, and so that's kind of where it started. Uh, it's very much, uh, I think, has maintained that spirit uh, of kind of punching back and punching up. Um, my thing is I always want, I never want to go back to lose that spirit where it's it's uh, challenging the status quo. Um we, uh, I never wanted to lose that freshness that it has, or that I think it has, mm-hmm. um, and we get that because we are always on the hunt for new writers. We are always on the hunt for for new people, new voices, uh, and we welcome them in, and we we give them the tools to succeed. Uh, you know, it's a lot of it is because. When you deal with uh, when you deal with women and when you deal with other marginalized communities in comics, um, there's a lot of coming up being told that things are a certain way, and it creates a self consciousness. It creates a hesitancy. Um, very few of us respond with, uh, "No, you're wrong. Actually, this is the way it is." Um, and I don't know if that's conditioning or what. Uh, Some of us are just spoiling for a fight. I know usually I am. Uh, And so I I always want Lewak to be a place where writers who might have a harder time getting a chance elsewhere can come to build themselves, to establish themselves. That's what it was for me. That's what it was for so many of the people that I'm friends with. Uh, It is a place where you are allowed to write the weird 3000 word screed on your favorite obscure character, even though, you know, that character isn't in anything big right now, even though it's not a hot topic, you are allowed to write that weird thing that that passion project that no other place is going to take a pitch for. Um, And I think that that's kind of what sets us apart. We're not beholden to anything. We're not beholden to the machine of comics. Mm -hmm. We are, uh, we are doing what we want in comics. We are doing the things that we love. Uh, and because we love it, the quality of that shines through, I think. That's great. Um, how much time do you get to dedicate to working on the site in a given day? You know, I know uh, comics journalism, obviously not a full-time gig for most people. <laughs> um, I probably spend... Um, like I'm fortunate to have the kind of day job where uh, I'm able to check in on things throughout the day just to kind of keep the wheels turning. Um, and usually when I get home, I spend probably about four to five hours uh, editing, writing my own stuff, uh, things like that. So That's great. 
So uh, you know, it's 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 like having a full time job and then another almost full time job on top of that. That I do on my own, voluntarily for no pay because I don't know how to have fun. <laughs> <laughs> Same. <laughs> yeah. Um. Do you do you find yourself you know up? Obsessing is probably not the right word, but, you know, do you find yourself to be concerned with, you know, some of the more administrative aspects of things like, you know, analytics and audience growth, or do you prefer to focus solely on, on the content itself? Uh, so the, the cool thing about WAC is that we have a really great team. Um, so we have people who are SEO trained. We have people who are trained in analytics uh, and who are trained in, in all the things like that so that. I don't ever have to worry about them because I hate them. <laughs> um, uh, I am not a person who who spends a lot of time focusing on who is reading what or what is successful or or things like that uh, because it's just not that's not what I'm here for. I'm not here to be successful in comics. I'm here to love comics, um, and you know. I feel like I've done pretty okay for myself in spite of that. Uh, you know, I feel pretty lucky about that. But I am possessed with a kind of boundless enthusiasm for comics. I am literally always ready to talk about them. I'm always ready to write about them. Um, I'm always ready to share that. And I'm always ready to to have that shared with me. Um, so it's great that there are people who are more focused on that stuff than I am because, yeah, I'm, I'm just not going to worry about it. In the same way that, like, I'm, I guess I'm weird in that I don't worry about, like, follower counts on Twitter or things like that. I guess some people worry about that stuff, and, and I, I never even look at it. It's healthier not to. <laughs> <laughs> um. Right around New York, uh, Comic-Con last week, there was this weird sort of mini uh, kerfuffle online in, in, in which, you know, we saw creators and journalists getting into it a little bit about interviews being awkward or, or, or painful. Did you, happen to, did you happen to see any of that? Uh, yeah. yeah. Um, I sure did. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, you know, what was your, what was your kind of, what was your take on that whole thing? Um, it felt like, I, I think there were good points on both sides. Um, I think that, uh, there are more thoughtful and more creative ways that interviewers can go about asking the kinds of questions that they want to ask. Um, and I think that I think that that little bit of a reality check is is good for everybody at some point or another. You know, it's always good to step back from a process that you might be, you might feel like you're used to it. You might feel like you've got it down pat. It's always good to step back from that and say, well, is there a way that I can actually do this better? Um, in my day job, I do a lot of that. I do a lot of like efficiency focused stuff. So, so I appreciate it from that angle. Um, I also think that there was a lot of stirring the pot uh, between creators and journalists. 
um, it a lot of it felt the same way that it feels when uh, creators start taking critics to task over reviews. Um, it's very much it's it's one group trying to tell the other how to do their job, and usually when that happens, there's always good points that are made. But I think that social media gets it caught up in this in this slap fight, you know. Yes, uh, I don't know a better way to put it. It's, it's no, it's accurate. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's people get mad and they start you know saying things because they're mad and they're defensive and uh, creators are guilty of it, critics are guilty of it, journalists are guilty of it. Uh, I think when those discussions come around, the best thing to do is if you feel yourself taking offense to something, if you feel yourself reacting like that, give yourself a minute. Internalize it. Ask why you feel that way. Ask ask yourself if you really disagree with what they're saying or if you disagree with the manner in which it was delivered. Yeah. You know, there's there's... There's never anything wrong with a little patience. Um, I, I was just curious because I was going through your uh, art, some of your articles uh, from the past, and mm-hmm. you back uh, at San Diego uh, went to the the Batman experience at uh, SDCC, uh, which is something I would have loved to do, even if your column made me feel a little bit better for having missed it. Uh, <laughs> Uh, are do you consider yourself a, a Batman fan, a Batman person? Because uh, I very much am, and we have a lot of very X Men focused guests, which is great because I also love the X Men. But I, I can never pass up a chance to talk Batman if I have the opportunity. Uh, I am absolutely a Batman fan. Um, I have a nearly complete uh, collection of trades from. Immediately post crisis, up to uh, the uh, like, up to where you know New Fifty Two started. Um, there are only a couple of gaps uh, in that run, and it's mostly stuff that just hasn't been printed yet, like hasn't been collected. Right. Uh, those those new Cape Crusader volumes are great for that. Yeah, I was gonna say there's there's a good chunk of the the that that the Mensch Grant. Dixon era that hasn't been collected, sadly, because I love that. That that was my Batman growing up. So yeah, yeah. So I grew up on um, a lot of that, a lot of that stuff. Um, I have a pretty good chunk. Uh, like Bray Fogel is my Batman artist. Oh yeah. To give you an idea of where, like, where I fall. Yeah, uh, we're we're right in the same wheelhouse there. Yeah. So um, I. I very much like um, that era of Batman, not just for the art, but for its portrayal of a man who uh, honestly felt like he was outmatched as often as he wasn't. Um, Starting with uh, Morrison's run in the late 90s, uh, there's very much this idea of Batman as this uh, inscrutable, indomitable person who is always prepared for every eventuality and um, 
that's fun, but also there's this thing that about the earlier stuff where you can prepare as much as you can, but sometimes there are things that you just can't anticipate. Um, I really appreciate that about that, that late eighties, early nineties era of Batman, where even though he was the kind of guy who was prepared, even though he knew everything and had all of the toys and everything else, um, there were things that he missed because either they were obscured from him or, you know, you've got like the run up to nightfall where he's just being run ragged. Um, there's a great panel uh, right in the early nightfall. I think it's maybe three issues into it uh, where he is barely on his feet, um, but he's got to do the Batman thing. He's got to make the impression. And so like he, I, I think it's when he's going after Zaz in the in the asylum, and he's got a like he jumps up on top of a police car, and he's got the street light behind him, and he's in silhouette, and he's just doing his, his scary Batman thing, and using the theatrics and the lighting and everything else to obscure the fact that he is a man who is barely holding it together. Absolutely. And I think Morrison, you're absolutely right that Morrison is the one who crafted that that bat god mythos. Yes. And it, it kills me because Morrison also did, in my opinion, the one of the, if not the great moment of Batman improvisational badass in his first yes. JLA arc. That yes. The, the scene with the with the when the hyper clan surrounds him. I don't want to spoil it for anyone who hasn't read that. But if you want to see Batman at his absolute friggin' best, JLA number three, where all he has are what little things he's able to salvage from a crashed uh, Batwing, and it's oh, it's one of if not my favorite Batman moment of all time. Yes, and. It's at that moment Morrison so gets the character. Then there's other times m later on, especially in his run on Batman, most of which I, I mean, I love that run. But you're right that inscrutable, prepared beyond all possible logic thing that he has Batman do strips away some of the humanity of the character, which is what yes. makes him Batman. Yes, it's it's great thematic work. It's great work for for addressing the question of what Batman is, um, and so it's very good in that respect. But it it absolutely lacks that human element. And the that same '90s era when Batman is building the the Bat family mm -hmm. since the the early '80s stripped so much of that away from him. Yes, and because I mean, after right around night, uh, not nightfall. What do I say? Nightfall. Death in the family. Mm -hmm. It's just really Jason and Alfred. Dick isn't really speaking to him. Barbara is retired, and there's no support structure other than Jason and Alfred. And then Jason's death, mm -hmm. you know, wrecks him. But you yep. get that whole period where in between uh, the A Lonely Place of Dying and Nightfall, where he – and right – not Nightfall, Lonely Place of Dying and No Man's Land, where you rebuild this huge family of characters. And 
so many writers get wrong, in my opinion, that Batman Batman is not a solo character. He never has been. Right. Well, that's and that's the whole thing. Like when you're doing the character right, he's he's never been a solo character, but he always thinks he is. Yes. Uh, he very he very much romanticizes his own personal struggle, uh, and he often forgets about. Uh, the contributions of the people around him and uh, that in my you know every character to be interesting has to have flaws and and for me those are the flaws that Batman has is that he is so focused on his mission he's so focused on this romanticized ideal of being who he is that he um, he for he, he downplays to himself without even realizing it what the people around him are doing what they're doing it for why they're invested um like i feel like if you're a member of the bat family he's probably a little bit insufferable (laughs) (laughs) except for those moments when he realizes it and yes actually is one of comics really good dads when he's having a a moment of reflection uh, yes. Detective Comics 1000 had that what, I think it was the, the little Tom King story where he winds up just taking the big group photo of his family to leave on his parents' grave and it's like, oh, Bruce remembered to person for a little bit he, he and Cyclops have that thing in common that's so focused on the mission they forget how to person yes uh, yeah, they do. Uh, there, there's there's that scene of, of Bruce eating a burger with a knife and fork <laughs> that always gets me. I love um, that scene. That was in the King one, right? Uh, I was, can't remember. I, it honestly, it was either King or Snyder. I, I, I feel like it's it's like early in the King run. He takes like Jason, Damien, and Duke to, to yeah, like a it's... fast food place and tells them to get out of town because Bane is coming. Yes. Like yeah. Yeah, I think it's I think it's King because Snyder Snyder didn't really do a lot of family stuff for all that he did Death of the Family. Mm-hmm. Like there wasn't a lot in his run that was like the family being a family. Um, but I just like I'm not really a great fan of King's work, uh, but I did really appreciate that moment because it's it's of course this rich boy who grew up rich eats his burger with a knife and fork so that he doesn't get any ketchup or anything else on his, you know, absurdly expensive three P like just, of course he does. And it's, it's, it's just a great subtle little nod to the fact that even the Batman stuff aside, Bruce Wayne's life is very different from our life. True. Um, how is, uh, or, you know, apart from, you know, we've talked a lot about X-Men. Obviously, we've talked a lot about Batman. Um, you know, is there anything else that you're reading right now? Um, I've been I've been reading the Lois Lane and Jimmy Olsen maxi-series that, that DC's been making. Mm, um, yeah. Because I'm I'm a sucker for the side characters. I'm a sucker for, for the books that are about, like, uh, that are about that. Um, heroes are fun, but they're nothing without the world that they inhabit. Um so I'm really enjoying those. Um, I was reading uh, Isola, mm-hmm. which has been a really fun book. Um, it's about you know a, a princess or, or 
who like gets cursed to become a tiger and her her guard and they're traveling to try and undo the curse it's it's carl Kershaw. um who else is on that brendan fletcher brendan fletcher yeah yes yeah uh so great talent uh behind the by the pen in both respects there a uh, very fun book um what else have i been reading lately um I think that's I think that's mostly it. Um, I mean, like the other the other thing that I've been getting is isn't really comic, isn't really a comic. It's just comics adjacent. It's uh, it's those rolled and told issues that, uh, yeah. Uh, so my other big obsession is I'm a huge uh, tabletop gaming nerd. Um, I love D and D. I love Pathfinder. I love all of it. You, you can't get we, we, we've gone nearly long you, you can't get me started on that thread or i'll just <laughs> um but I, I i really like without getting too deep into it i i really like what roland told is doing um i really like the work that it's doing to make tabletop gaming accessible to a crowd that might not otherwise see a lot there that's interesting to them mm-hmm. um because i think that for all that 5th edition of D&D especially has done to make the game itself and the mechanics of themselves more more accessible, there's there is a bit of overlooking of the art style, I think, because the art style is very um, very classic in the, the, the D&D sense, and you know, it's, it's these detailed illustrations of, of monsters and uh, characters fighting them and and these very uh dramatic things and i think that there's something to be said for quiet moments calm moments and even even cute moments in D mm-hmm. uh that is missing from the, the the marketing of the the primary product um you know you're 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 selling these books on the idea of combat and conquest and and all of these things and D is so much more than that tabletop role-playing games are so much more than that um you know for all that like everybody jokes about how you know instead of a group of heroes it ends up being like a group of oh these assholes <laughs> um i think that they're like there's so much more in the quiet character moments and in the in the the interpersonal stuff that brings people back and that can draw people in and i think that rolled and told is really good about leaning into that and doing it in a fun way uh you know because it still has action it still has fights and everything like that in the in the material presented but it's done in a way that appeals to people it i guess i guess the best comparison i could make is um you know you have your cape comics Mm-hmm. But then you also have like your your Rena Telkemeyer stuff. Sure. You know, you've got your Scholastic stuff that is outselling Cape Comics by far and has been for a long time now. Mm-hmm. And it feels like uh, in the decision to limit themselves to a certain type of presentation, uh, the folks at Hasbro and Wizards of the Coast have 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 unintentionally cut themselves off from a much larger audience. Uh, and if I like Rolled and Told because it feels like it's bridging that gap, even if I'm not real happy with uh, uh, Flying Forge and Oni for their whole merger and layoff yeah. thing. 
definitely. Um, as we are, as we, as we're wrapping up, Noah, uh, how can people follow you online if you, in fact, wish to be followed? Uh, you may follow me. Uh, you may not at me. My name is my my handle is Nolafau. Uh, exactly the same as my my first and last name. Exactly the same as everything else, uh, which is just N O L A P F A U on Twitter, on Instagram. Feel free. Noah, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, thank you very much. That's it for this week's show. As always, you can listen to WMQ&A on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, SoundCloud, and at WMQComics.com, where new episodes move Tuesday mornings. You can support WMQ&A and WMQComics.com at Patreon.com slash WMQComics, where just a dollar donation gets you early access to episodes, the ability to promote your work on our site, and a customized bonus reading column written by our own Matt Lazowitz built around the character, creator, or theme of your choice. Big thanks to our patrons, uh, Steve Morris from Shelf Dust and the M&T, Charlie Davis from the Young Ones Podcast, Robert Secundus from Hoxpox Talks, and Scott Madrinsky from Mojoswork.com. You can follow WMQ Comics on Twitter and Facebook, and you can follow me on Twitter at Daniel P. Grote and Matt Lazowitz at MattLaz1013. Not a fan of social media? Sign up for our weekly Q newsletter, which gives you the best of WMQ every week in your inbox. Finally, and most importantly, check out WMQComics.com for all your comics news, previews, reviews, interviews, and plain old views, and we'll see you next time. W-N-Q-A. W-N-Q-A.